morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open to Amos 8. You will find it helpful to do that. And additionally, you can find an outline in the bulletin. Now, some of you may have wondered where I was a few weeks back. We were away for two Sundays in Australia. I had the privilege of attending a conference for pastors and leaders. I'm so thankful to Andrew for allowing me to go and for the consistory members to support me being away for so long. It was a really refreshing time, something I really needed. So uh, thank you for letting me be away. Now, we, I woke on Saturday morning, just yesterday, <clears throat> hoping to get uh, you know, a lot of the sermon done, but I ended up spending good part of the morning vacuuming uh, because Sharona knocked over a glass jar and it's those chipotle glass and so it prong everywhere, right? Now, obviously, it's not the first time we've told the children, don't put you know, breakable things at the edge of the table. It's a trivial example, but it highlights the question we sometimes ask ourselves, right? Why is it so hard for people to listen? Why is it so hard for people to change? You know, you tell them again and again and again, why is it so hard for people to change? Well, Jesus gives us an answer, and he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 43, uh, you recognize it when I read it. He says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So, see, Jesus here, very insightful. He gives us the answer as to why. Why is it people find it so hard to change? Because while there may be external pressures causing them to conform, if the heart isn't changed, the behavior will ultimately show it. A good tree will bear good fruit, bad tree will bear bad fruit. Now, there was a really good illustration uh, that I heard at the conference which I want to share with you. Okay, so this, so imagine, imagine uh, I live in a house and there's a backyard, okay? And in the backyard, there is an apple tree. And Maria says to me, hey, year after year, this apple tree is giving us bad, dry apples. Why? Can you do something about it? And so, the next morning, as Maria is washing up the dishes, she sees me carrying a ladder, okay? Carrying a, a, a very good nail gun and a basket full of juicy red apples. And I'm climbing up the ladder and nailing the apples to the tree. Now, after I'm done people who pass by would go, wow, this guy must be like, you know, some apple expert. But for Maria looking out through the window, she's thinking, okay, this is it. He's gone. Okay. You see, I've done nothing to actually change the tree. Simply by nailing 
good apples on the tree doesn't mean I will get good apples the next year. See, this is an illustration of how so much of our attempts to change people is simply apple nailing. It's just apple nailing. It's not getting to the root of the issue. Jesus says, if you want to see change, you must address the heart. Do you want to change? Do you hope that some people that you love, you see them heading the wrong way, you want to see change in them? You must address the heart. And so let, let's pray together that God may work in our hearts, that true change may come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you're so often pleased to accompany uh, the teaching and preaching of your word with the working of your spirit. And in fact, unless you do that, there may only be superficial outward change, but there, there cannot be any heart change. But Father, we are not satisfied with simply a superficial change. We're not satisfied with just knowing more things. Father, we want to have our hearts changed. So Father, please, in grace and mercy, would you reach out, touch our hearts by your Spirit, that we may know and hear your word, see and know your face. Please be at work within us, Father, we pray. Amen. So three points. The first, when the time is right. When the time is right. Verses 1 to 3. Now, this is the fourth vision that God is showing Amos, and it's a vision of ripe fruit. And it is a play on words because God is saying, what do you see? You see ripe fruit. The lesson is the time is ripe. The time is ripe. The time is ripe for what? The time is ripe for God's judgment. God says, I will spare them no longer in verse 2. Right? His, his patience has run out. I will spare them no longer. It's the same message that we saw last week in chapter 7, right, with the vision of the plumb line, which uh, Chi Kyung used in his prayer uh, just a moment ago. Why is God repeating this? If it's the same message, why is he repeating it? Now, most likely, it is because Amos is in a different location. Now, back in chapter 7, and before that, uh, very likely, Amos is preaching in the capital, which is Samaria. But when we come to chapter 7, there's that encounter with Amaziah, the priest, and he's a priest at Bethel, and he says, do not prophesy here at Bethel. Okay, which means that Amos has probably moved from the capital to this temple at Bethel. So, Amos is in a different location. He's probably preaching near the temple. And so it makes verse 3 all the more powerful. Where it says, In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. So imagine Amos preaching this. And in the background is, is uh, the temple at Bethel where people are singing songs of worship. Where people are standing and praying and, and offering their sacrifices. And, and Amos is saying, in that day, when God's judgment falls, there will be, instead of joyful singing, 
there will be mourning and wailing. Instead of people praying and, and bowing down, there will be bodies flung everywhere, death. And then there will be silence. Why silence? I thought there's wailing. I thought there's mourning. But the judgment will be so complete that there will not even be anyone left to cry. There will be complete silence because everyone is dead at the temple. It is a demonstration of the utter and devastating picture of God's judgment. Because the time is ripe for God's judgment. And the people at Bethel were probably asking, why? Will God hear us? Will God hear our our cries for repentance? Why is all these things going to happen? In verses 4 to 6, Amos gives the answer. And it is point two, when God's people are disengaged. When God's people are disengaged. Verse 4 says, Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land. And then second half of verse 5, what do they do? They skimp on the measure. They're boosting the price. They're cheating with dishonor scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. You see, we've heard all this before, right? How again and again God comes at the people of Israel and and the indictment is how they've not cared for the needy, how they've neglected the poor. God again and again in His Word commanded His people because He is a God who cares for the poor. He is a God who looks out for the disenfranchised, the marginalized, and He wants His people to do the same. But instead of caring for the poor, providing for the needy, you see the indictment again and again, right? It comes on the people of Israel. They, they've cheated them. They've trampled on them. Right? Use dishonor skills. And when they sell the grain, they even sell the, the sweepings from the floor to, to make it heavier, get more money. They have ignored his word. Now, the beginning of verse 5 gives us an insight. It says, these people that God is indicting, accusing of, they are thinking in their heads, oh, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? You see, he's not indicting pagans. Right? These are people who actually come to the worship services. They, they, they are there in church, but it's only physically. Physically, they are there, but their minds are somewhere else. You see, just just getting people to come for service, that's apple nailing. That's apple nailing. It doesn't, it may not, it could, but just having them physically at church doesn't mean there is a change of heart. Because these people are disengaged with God, they are disengaged with His Word. Because God is not at the center of their lives. Right? I'm sure you can see that the warning and application to us. Right? You and I may be here. Our children may come here. They may have perfect attendance in uh, the children's church. You may have perfect attendance in Sunday service. But that's not enough. Because unless our hearts are engaged, 
We are really seeking to come and listen and do business with God. Is God at the center? Or, or maybe, you know, like these people, we are thinking, okay, when will this service end? When will this sermon end? All right. So how do we know? How do we know if we are truly engaged with God? What's a, what's a, what's a good indicator? What's a good sign to see? Okay. Yeah. This, I am engaged with God. I am engaged with His Word. Well, let me suggest one. This is the eighth week. I've counted. This is the eighth week that we are doing Amos. That means, you know, for the past seven weeks and including this one, it's been eight weeks we've been learning from this book of Amos. Has anything changed? Has anything changed? Again and again, the, the warnings and the application and the truth of God's word has been coming home to us. It's been, it's been decent, faithful, clear teaching all through these eight weeks, I, 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 I suggest. It's not from, you know, faulty, you know, uh, interpretation or, you know, we're not really understanding this. I'm sure that there's a lot that we understand, some that we might not, but the things that we have understood, the things that we've seen clearly from his word, has it resulted in any change? Has anything changed? You see this, for example, this call to care for the poor and needy. Now, it's not the first time we've come across this. Has it affected your wallet? Has it affected your bank account? And see, what you and I need to hear is this is not just an Old Testament thing. You know, the call to care for the poor and needy, that's just Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's, okay, kingdom stuff, evangelism, you know, gospel. No, no, no. Look at uh, 1 Timothy 6, which Ji uh, Kyung told us is a short, responsive reading, and indeed it is short, but I think it gets to the point. See, the New Testament God is the same as the Old It is the same God speaking to us in Amos and now speaking to us in 1 Timothy. And very clear, right? In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world. Now, all of us here, okay, maybe 95%, 98% of us here are rich. Maybe except the ministry intern, okay? Maybe he's not rich, but everyone of us, everyone of else here is rich. And so he's talking to us, right? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. So you see, very clear, it's, 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 a, it's a warning calling us, hey, don't follow that natural tendency to put your hope in wealth. Instead, you must cultivate hope in God. See, you have a tendency to put your hope in wealth. You have a tendency to be fixated on wealth. You have a tendency to, to want to have more and more and more of it. But instead, you 
must develop that habit, that inclination to put your hope in God. Don't just, don't just treat God as someone who, okay, okay, oh God, if things go wrong, I'll pray to you, but, but, you know, I'm in charge of, of making sure my family is provided. No, don't have that attitude to God. Right? Put your hope in Him. He's the one who gives you everything for your enjoyment. You can trust Him. But you see, you know it, right? It's so hard for people to change. Even though we've been hearing this week in, week out, you know, the challenge has come in various forms, but it's so hard for people to change. Israel heard the commands. Israel had the word. And eventually, even though they were given repeated warnings, they did not change. And that's why God says in verse 2, I will spare them no longer. Judgment is falling. And the next section shows us what judgment looks like. Verses 7 to 14. When God's judgment falls. When God's judgment falls. Verse 7. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. You see, right? this is not the first time God is swearing an oath in Amos, but his purpose of doing that is, 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 is to really get it across right. It will happen. Right? I've sworn by myself, I've sworn by my character. It is going to happen. And God says, I will never forget what they've done. Now, if you, if you compare this uh, to other places in the Old Testament where this same God says, I will not remember their sins anymore. I mean, in, in other times to other people, this is, this, is, this is the same God who says, ah, they've sinned, they've sinned, they've sinned, but in grace, I will not remember their sins. I will forget their sins. I will not remember their sins anymore. I mean, this, this God who at other times, other places, actually says, I will not remember. Here, the, the, the sin and rebellion of, of Israel has gotten to the point where he says, I will not forget what they've done. It's a devastating picture of God who is intent and determined to judge. So judgment will fall on Israel. And Amos describes what will happen. Verse 8. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise up like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. Do you know what this is talking about? The, the land will be like river. It will like rise one moment, fall another moment. It's talking about this great earthquake. I mean, it, it, is, it is showing the majestic power of God. His judgment coming. And if you are a person eh, living on that land where this land is rising and falling like the now, you, you, you are a person facing the, the majestic, unstoppable power of God's judgment coming on you and you are totally helpless in the face of it. And then in verses 9 to 10, God declares again and again, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. 
In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, verse 9, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. You see, darkness, darkness during daytime. Uh, we had that in the Exodus. It was one of the plagues. Uh, it's a clear sign of God's anger, clear sign that God's judgment is coming, that he is angry at sin and rebellion. And there will be, instead of uh, singing, there will be mourning and wailing. And then he says it will be like mourning for an only son. But when I was doing NS, there was this tragic accident where someone in my division uh, was killed in a training exercise. And so because it was part of my division, we all had to be there uh, at a funeral, marching. And the person who died was an only son. And the, the mother was inconsolable. I mean, if you have three more, then okay, you know, one son is gone, but there's three more. But the only son, only child. And then, you know, you know the, can, can just imagine the, the weight, the pain in the heart, and all the, all the crying, all the wailing, can, cannot get rid of this pain. God is saying, when, when, when my judgment falls, your, your, your pain, your wailing will be like that. Now in verse 11, God says, I will do one more thing as part of his judgment. He says, verse 11, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Now I wonder as we see those words, as you hear me reading that, I wonder if any one of us, anyone here genuinely frightened by that? Anyone like, you know, genuinely scared that this might happen? Maybe because we think, no lah, you know, family of the word of God, no what, you see? God, this is one Bible, I've got nine more in my study. Really, I got I really have nine more in my study. I've got, you know, Bible here, Bible on my iPad, you know, um, even if something happens to Y, there's Andrew, something happens to Andrew, there's Mark, you know, and then there's Nick as well, and then worse come to worse, there's Minkit, you know. Um <laughs> you know, no, no scared, don't have. Some more online. Online. Got John Piper. Got Don Carson. You know? Uh Now, a few things to say. Now, we mustn't take for granted that just because we have access to all these resources now, that it means we will always have them. Right? In 20 years, our world can so drastically change where, you know, if you have the Bible app on your phone, that's it, you go to prison. Like, could happen, right? 
Now, so it's, it's not something that we should take lightly or take for granted. But I think even more fundamentally, even if you have all these resources, even if you have you know, John Piper standing here, you know, instead of me, you can, you can read a passage, right? You can have the help of three of the best commentaries in the world helping you with that passage. You can hear what might be the very best sermon that's ever been preached on that passage. But if God withdraws His Spirit, if God doesn't, if He's not pleased to have His Spirit work in your heart, then all that, all that will just be information. It will be information, but it will be just that. It will have no power to affect your heart or your life at all. If God is not pleased to accompany the reading of His Word, the, the studying through commentaries, the hearing of His Word preached, if He's not pleased, if He withdraws His Spirit, it will have no effect on you. Now, I mean, okay, it might have one effect. Okay, it could just make you proud. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the effect it will have. That you gain this knowledge and you become proud. But it will have no lasting effect on your character, your heart, your life. If God is not pleased to work by His Spirit in our hearts. Now, the reason why I said I had such an encouraging time at the conference in Sydney was because it's been a while. It's been a while since I sat under the preaching of God's Word and, how do I say it, really experience God by His Spirit. You know, take that Word. And, and so, you know, bring it home to my heart that I know that, oh God, thank you for working this way. Thank you that, I mean, it's, okay, oh, almost nothing new I learned, okay? I mean, it's conference, four full days, morning, night, morning, afternoon, night, you know, main talks, workshops, electives, okay, now, I'm not trying to be proud, but you know, really, almost nothing new I learned. But it's not about learning new things, is it? I mean, the problem of the church is not lack of information or needing more information. The problem is, is God being pleased to take fundamental truths and, and press it home to our hearts. That we see it afresh, that we, that we see the weight of those truths afresh. That, that, that we, that we actually feel our minds being renewed, our hearts being renewed. What, that's what we need. God to do that. And so, hear God's warning to us. If we are determined to be a people who will not be humble, who will not have the attitude of, of, of humility and being contrite at His word, if we will not hear and repent, if you will not take him at his word and take his word seriously, 
then there can be all these resources, there can be all these people preaching to you the world's best sermons. In spite of all that happening, there may be actually a famine of hearing God's word. Because in the past we hear, but we take it lightly. We hear, but we don't do business. We hear, but we don't repent. So God is, this is what He's doing to Israel. They keep doing that, right? They keep doing that. And so, famine. Famine of hearing God's word. They will go from, you know, sea to sea. Uh, most likely the Mediterranean Sea to the, the Sea of Galilee. That's, you know, west to east, east to west. And then what? They will go from north to east. Eh? Why doesn't he say north to south? You know why? Because where is Amos from? It's from the south. So they go east to east to west, east to west, north to east, but they won't go to where? Uh, they know God's word is coming from. And so they will, they will not find it. They will not find it. And so it's a warning to us. We who live amidst such an abundance of resources and so much word ministry going around us. But if you will not take God seriously and take him as, at his word, the warning is he can withdraw. Now verse 13 shows us that the next generation is affected. So verse 13 says, In that day the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria who say, As surely as your God lives then, as surely as the God of Bathsheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. See, the next generation is affected. And they, they will faint because they, they do not have the life-giving upholding nutritional value of the word of God, they will faint and they will turn to other gods. They will turn to idols. And of course, those idols have no power to sustain them. Now, how is the next generation affected? I mean, you can see it's affected right here. But let me, let me give you by an example. So for example, okay, for example, in, in, in our day today, uh, for example, okay, there's a sermon on greed. Okay? Uh, the mother, father is there, children, okay, they all hear this sermon on greed. But then, when they go back home, the son sees the father surfing on Amazon, looking to buy another camera. See? What is that reinforcing? It's reinforcing to the children, the child, the son. Eh? Just heard the sermon on greed, then now that's buying another camera or, you know, another, you know, whatever. No, it's, it's building up an immunity, not against you know Ebola, but an immunity against God's word. Okay, so you know another example. Okay, maybe it's a sermon on generosity, sermon on generosity, sermon sermon on helping the poor, and then next month, father and mother buy a hundred and fifty thousand dollar car, and then the kid. Okay, we could have bought a cheaper car. Money could have gone to help the poor, the needy, but he spent $150,000 on this car. See, it's, it's the next generation is affected. The kids are learning that you don't really have to take the word of God seriously. And so they will grow up not trusting this, learning to be, you know, immunized against this. So they will faint. They will faint. They will turn to other gods. And they will fall. 
It's a warning. It's a warning. How, how terrible it is when God's judgment falls. Now, when I first read this passage, I, I couldn't help but notice elements of God's judgment in Amos 8 that also appear on that first Good Friday. Because on that, on that very first Good Friday, when Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake. On that very first Good Friday, there was darkness at daytime. And on that very first Good Friday, there was the death of an only son. Please turn to Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. Now the earthquake reference is found in Matthew, but you can see here in Mark 15, verse 33, the the darkness is mentioned. So at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And darkness, I remind you, is, is that clear sign of God's anger. He's judging sin. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we've seen in Amos 8 how devastating a picture it is when God's judgment falls. Here on that first Good Friday, the author wants to make it clear that judgment is falling on Jesus Christ. Jesus who perfectly lived before the Father. Jesus who had not even a a single thought or or a deed of trampling the poor, of withholding, you know, being tight-fisted and not caring for the needy. You know, any one of these things, right, are, are, are one instance of greed a one, one instance of selfishness is enough to condemn us to a destiny of hell. Because we've fallen short. We've broken God's law. We're a lawbreaker. But Jesus had none of this, and yet here he is, God's judgment falling on him. Because he is taking every one of our greed, our, our, our selfishness, our, our you know, contempt for the poor, our, our lust, our, our, our hurtful words, Jesus is bearing all of that on himself. And so God's judgment is falling on his only son. And it is so devastating that Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the relationship is broken. Once there was perfect intimacy. But with Jesus bearing our sin and facing God's wrath, that that, that relationship is broken. And so Jesus cries out. But there's no answer. It's silence. Because Jesus is facing that wrath for us. And so, because he has been forsaken, right, any one of us, no matter your track record in the past of your greed or lack of generous generosity, any one of us who come to him can find forgiveness. There can be a certainty that because he was forsaken, I will never be forsaken. Because he was forsaken, I am forgiven. Now friends, we, 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 we considered earlier, right? Why is it so hard for people to change? Change must come 
only at the heart level. That's where real change can happen. Now, the New Testament tells us because of what Jesus has done, Him being that sacrifice of atonement, the new covenant which God is making with us can take place. And the new covenant, I mean, one of it says, I will take away your heart of stone. Give you a heart of flesh because of what Jesus has done. In God's judgment falling on Him, the promise of the new covenant can be accomplished that we are given new hearts. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. Only by this can we have new hearts. So if you trust in what is happening here, of, of, of Jesus taking God's judgment on your behalf, judgment that you fully deserve, but He's taken it, you can have the promise, the assurance, the certainty of God giving you new hearts. It, it don't have to be, you don't have to be hardened against God and His Word. You, you don't have to bear that weight of guilt. You don't have to Allow those things that happened to you or the things that you did determine your future and how you relate with God. He's given you a new heart. The old has gone, the new has come. But I say to you, the heart must be cultivated. But he makes the responsibility clear. And so, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we see this. You see, what's the whole logic of Paul in 1 Timothy? Right? He says, I command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous, be willing to share, you know, don't, don't put your hope in wealth, put your hope in God. The logic is, verse 19, verse 19, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, it's only when Jesus has given us a new heart that we are able to see, yes, there is a coming age. He has died and has risen again. He, this is the promise that life doesn't end with death. There is a new age where we will have new bodies, we will be living for eternity in heaven with God before Jesus. And so if, if you allow your heart, this new heart that Jesus has given you, if you allow it to be cultivated by the truth of the gospel, the truth of what Jesus has accomplished, then, right, it begins to make more sense. Yes, yes, yes. Life here is not all there is. There is a life coming. And so it is, what shall I say? So foolish, isn't it? To spend a hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a car, that I mean, like, you can spend a hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a car in many places in the world, and it gives you the illusion that it lasts for a long time, right? But surely, surely, in Singapore, where the government says no, it's only ten years, all the more it makes it clear that hey, why invest in something that will only last ten years, when if Jesus has died and is risen again? God is saying, invest into that eternity. Store up treasure for yourself in that coming age. You see, but if our hearts 
we don't allow it to be immersed, marinated in the, in the truth of the gospel, if we don't fix our eyes on Jesus and the reality that He now brings into the world, then, of course, spending $150,000 on a car makes sense. But how can you look at that? How can you see all that He offers and all that is coming and think that it's a good deal, think that it's a wise thing to do? No, only when we see, only when our hearts are changed and empowered, yes. Oh, the reality of, of who He is, the reality of what He's brought in. Ah, then it makes sense. You see, Paul is not saying, oh, just give everything away and then be as unhappy as you, you, you can be. No, look at what he says. Right? Store up treasure for yourselves. It's going to be a firm foundation for the coming age. So that they may take hold of the life that is true, you know, it's for your good. Take, take hold of the life that is truly life. Why, why grab at something that is just vapor, that, that, that will, that will melt away, that, that's inconsequential? No, no. You see, you look at Christ, you look at what He's brought in, you look, look at what He's brought about. Ah, it makes sense. Take hold of the life that is truly life. Look at Him. Trust in the new heart He's given you. Cultivate your heart with the reality of who He is, all that He's given. Then you will begin to see that what He's brought in, what is promised for us, oh, invest in that. May God help us. Amen.